Thanks for joining us at Keys for SLPs, opening new doors for speech-language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals, patients, and caregivers to discuss therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field as we discuss a variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. We are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word keys for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with the code word keys. Visit speechtherapypd.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Hello, welcome back, everyone. This is part two of a two-part series And this episode is Keys to Rehabilitation After Laryngectomy. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines. Before we get started, we have a few things to mention. I know some of you have already heard all this, who have already listened to part one, but we may have people who are listening tonight who haven't listened to part one or who may be listening in the future to just part two. So anyway, per ASHA regulations, here we go. Here are the disclosures. I am the host of Keys for SLPs and receive compensation from speechtherapypd.com. No relevant non-financial disclosures exist. Heather Thompson is an SLP at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. She receives compensation from speechtherapypd.com for this episode. No relevant non-financial disclosures exist. And here are our learning objectives. One, describe different equipment utilized for laryngectomy for communication and safety. Two, explain the importance of the SLP role in preoperative education and counseling in order to facilitate effective communication post-laryngectomy. And three, identify four different options for communication post-laryngectomy. And now we again welcome our guest today, Heather Thompson, MSCCC SLP, a speech-language pathologist at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, specializing in the evaluation and treatment of oropharyngeal swallowing disorders, as well as head and neck cancer, speech and swallowing restoration. She is proficient in the management of voice prosthesis following transesophageal voice restoration after total laryngectomy. She has served as a guest lecturer at the University of Southern California and California State University, Los Angeles. Most recently, she presented at the Society of Physicians Assistants in Ear, Nose, and Throat in Los Angeles, California. She co-authored a book chapter on the role of the SLP in head and neck cancer management. Currently, she is involved in research in the lung transplant population and participates in community outreach promoting speech-language pathology. We are so happy to have you here on Keys for SLPs to talk about rehabilitation after laryngectomy. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and talking about laryngectomy, especially after the the, the head and neck cancer talk we just did. I feel like laryngectomy is its own separate entity all in itself. So I'm glad that we're able to just talk to talk about laryngectomy on its own. 
Well, so am I. And it's so interesting for people who may be involved in this um, niche in our field, as well as for people who are interested in laryngectomy, but haven't had a lot of exposure to it um, prior to now. So thank you for sharing your expertise with us. We're really excited. Um, So I know some of you have listened to part one, but the numbers are different. So not everyone has listened. Um, But for those of you who are just joining us, Heather, can you tell us a little bit about your journey that led you to to work with people with laryngectomies? Yeah. So laryngectomy is a very different population. I actually started working with adults and pediatrics. So a very different end of the spectrum. And also, you know, wasn't always in the adult realm and then worked in long-term acute neuro. And then about 10 years ago, we had a new surgeon to the hospital where I am now, which is Cedar sinai in Los Angeles, California, who wanted to start a head and neck cancer program and wanted to know if there was a speech therapist who was interested in helping grow and build that program. So at that point, I had volunteered because I had had experience with laryngectomy and head and neck cancer patients like this much um, from my graduate school program and also when I had worked in acute settings. So I was like the only one who had had this much. So I had volunteered. So as I said, the last time it was sink or swim. So I just dove right in and now it's, I love it, you know? So I don't know if I'm the expert, but I I know a lot. I think you are now after 10 years. I think it's okay. You can call yourself an expert. Um, all right. So um, last in the part one, you updated the statistics on head and neck cancer. So for part two, can you give us an update on laryngectomy in like the past 20 years? So laryngectomies, there's, it's a very, very small niche um, population. It's the smallest of the, the, out of the head and neck cancers, it's, it makes up like 1% of the head and neck cancer. So very small. And there's only about 10,000, I think the last statistic was 10,270 people currently living in the U.S. with a laryngectomy. So that's, that's it. There's not that many. So knowing that there's, it's, it's very scary, I feel like, for our patients and for speech therapists who don't work with this population that often, because it's not just, you would be surprised at how many respiratory therapists, other doctors, physicians, ENTs, who really are not familiar with this population, it's because it's so small and it's so rare that if people will see a laryngectomy and automatically assume that it's a trach patient. So, and um, that's how, how rare this, this population is. So um, because, you know, we had kind of talked about this prior because smoking has decreased also, you know, 
with chemo radiation kind of coming in, organ preservation, laryngectomies have kind of con- gone down. So there's, you know, you're not seeing as many, but there are still laryngectomy surgeries being done. Um, they're just done more often at major medical centers. Okay. So um, I imagine with those numbers being so small, there aren't a lot of doctors who specialize in it. Yeah, there's very, very, very few. And and that's kind of what I tell my laryngectomy patients are like, you have to know you are the expert. Believe it or not, you are going to go, you are going to be the expert when, you know, you live in a small town in Nevada you may not be able to get to Los Angeles. So you need to know how to care for this. Your wife needs to know. You are going to need to be able to tell your fire department, you know, how to resuscitate you, you know? And and until they have that one incident, they're like, I didn't realize how rare this was, you know, until I left my little big city bubble. Well, speaking of which, what are some of the special considerations when um, resuscitating a laryngectomy patient? I think, you know, I think that's kind of, and we'll, you know, probably talk about that, you know, when we go a little bit deeper into that preoperative, but, you know, the anatomy is completely changed. So when the larynx removed, you reroute, for lack of a better word, the airway. And so they become a neck breather. So basically then the nose is, is, is like there for cosmetics. So they're breathing through their neck. So all CPR airway needs to be through the neck. So if they do CPR and give oxygen through the mouth, they're never going to get it. It has to be through the neck. So knowing those different things. The same thing, if they consider this a trach, you can cover a trach. A trach is a one-way valve, you can cover it. So if the trach is covered, it's it's fine. If you cover a laryngectomy stoma, they're not gonna be able to breathe. So I think those are the things that I feel like the biggest kind of misconceptions with a laryngectomy versus a trach. I think people see a stoma and they automatically want to cover it, you know, and you need to have special covers and adapters for that. And you also need to do different things for airway protection as well. So um, like would a fire department have a, a special like a oxygen mask or not oxygen, a special, you know, mask for CPR to put on the stoma? They should have it. Okay. Um, they should have it. Um, when I have a larynx, and once again, when we go into the, the preoperative, I always tell my patients to contact their local fire department and make sure that they know that there is a laryngectomy patient at the home. And that if 911 is called to that home, that they need to have a special adapter for um, CPR and for resuscitation. Smaller 
small, believe it or not, there are still small, small fire departments um, that they have um, volunteer fire departments and they don't have it. So the vendors do have patients can't, and I say as a backup, always have a plan B. And so a lot of laryngectomies do have that for their own as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Didn't mean to digress, but it's just something that I never thought of. So um, yeah, we'll get into that a little bit more later. Oh, and Mary Beth, there was a question. Do you want me to answer it or? Oh, um, I didn't. I just changed my setup here. So I didn't see that down there. Um, sure. I will ask it. Is it true that when a patient has a laryngectomy, they can be immediately placed on regular thin liquids without a swallow study? Was stuck in this situation once. The, the this SLP was stuck in this situation once. Um, so I feel like that's a loaded question um, because <laughs> those are the best kind of questions. Thank you for an- asking it. <laughs> yeah, right. Thank you for the loaded question because protocol after a laryngectomy is you should get a leak test because there could be a fistula, and if there is a fistula, it could go into the airway. Also, if a laryngectomy has a TEP and it's it's leaking, then you, they can't be on a regular thin liquid diet because that liquid can go into the airway. So, I mean, theoretically, could they be placed on a regular thin liquid diet? Yes, but I feel like if you haven't seen the patient, you don't know the patient, you don't know the background, you don't know how the surgery was, or if they've had a leak test, or if they have a fistula, or they're recovering for a fistula, I I would probably go for the video swallow study, just to make sure that there are no fistulas that could cause any, because you don't want to feed somebody who's had a laryngectomy, And you don't know how far out they are from now, if they're years out from surgery and they've been on a regular diet, they're fine. But if it's somebody that's a new laryngectomy and you don't know if they've eaten or not eaten or if they've had a leak test or not, then you need to go on and do that test because you don't want to feed somebody and then they have a fistula and then all of a sudden you're feeding them and things are getting dumped into an airway or a stomach or dumped somewhere along the line because it wasn't, there was a fistula along the way. So I hope that makes sense. I think that does make sense. I have a follow-up question to that. So a leak test is just an MBS to see if there's a leak or is it something else? Yeah, it's an MBS to see if there's a leak. So what happens after, so the doctor will remove the larynx And then what they do is they'll do a reconstruction. They'll do, so they'll either do kind of like a gastric kind of pull up and they'll reconstruct that way, or they'll take a a flap of skin and they'll re, they'll do a neopharynx and they'll, they'll um, rebuild the esophagus. So they cut off. They, you know, so here's the neopharynx and then they reroute this way. So all the food and liquid can go this way into the stomach and then the airway goes this way. So it's a two-way system. So if 
they've just had the surgery and this tissue hasn't all formed and there's a hole, then what could happen is if they're eating or drinking food or liquid could go and then could go out this way. So that's where you could get into a problem. So you want to do a leak test to make sure that there's no fistula. However, if it's a laryngectomy patient that's been out for several years, has been on a regular thin liquid diet, and you've assessed, they've had a TEP, so a voice prosthesis in pace, and you look and you give them liquid, and there's no water going or liquid going around the TEP or through the TEP, so you know there's no liquid going around, then yes, you can give them food or liquid without the video swallow. But if it's like a new laryngectomy, you don't know that they've had that, I would just go on and get the video swallow study just to make sure. But then also too, you know, you don't know this patient. You don't know if there's a stricture, you know, they're new to you. So objective studies are always, always just best anyway, because if they have radiation, there could be strictures, there could be, you know, it's just, it's just probably best. I'm like, it's just always best. And yeah, err on the side of caution in that case. And that, um, Participants said, thank you. You really clarified that for them. So thank you for, for answering it. Okay. And keep those questions coming. We're going to kind of go through the content that we have prepared, but it's great to jump around too. So feel free to ask questions um, now um, or and or at the end. All right. So we reviewed, we really dove into the multidisciplinary team in part one. Um, I would imagine it's a pretty similar team for the laryngectomy team. Um, do you want to quickly just for those who didn't listen to part one, um, just quickly go through those num- those uh, people? Yes. Yeah, so your, your multidisciplinary team is your otolaryngologist or your ENT laryngologist. And then you also have your, your radiation oncologist and that would be if the patient needs radiation, you have your oncologist. Then we also had talked about how um, we have a palliative care slash supportive medicine slash pain management doctor, a social worker who is actually, I feel like the cheerleader. You need a social worker for a laryngectomy patient. Um For the families, for the patient, they will say they don't need it. You need a social worker, dietitian, and um, we have a dentist, and I think I named physical therapist, occupational therapist. So I think I hit just about everybody. I think you did. Okay. And we have another question. Um, The person said, can you clarify what is a TEP? That is the transesophageal voice prosthesis. Um, That is a a voice prosthesis that can be placed at the time of laryngectomy or after a laryngectomy. What it it does, it's placed in the neopharynx between, I guess, the, the esophagus. And what it does is the patient will take a breath and they'll push in on 
a piece of a equipment, which is called a heat moisture exchange. I wish I had a, a picture of it. And what it does is it, they take a breath. It's like they're holding their breath and it reroutes the air through this device. It causes the esophagus to vibrate and then it reroutes the air up through the mouth so that the laryngectomy patient can speak. So a, even though a laryngectomy patient doesn't have a voice or vocal cords, if they have this voice prosthesis, they're able to voice using this transesophageal voice prosthesis. Okay. Thank you. And um, how long have uh, TEPs been around? I should have looked that up. Um, I think Blumsinger is the one who developed it. And I think 1970s. Okay. 1970s is when I think it came out. Okay. So quite a while. Okay. Maybe 1980s. Okay. <laughs> but they've been around. They've been around. If any of our participants know that answer, feel free to put it in the chat. All right. So when working with a patient preoperatively, what are the most important topics that you will cover? So preoperatively is kind of like what we were just talking about. You just kind of want to go over everything initially. So the first thing is you, you want to talk about the changes in anatomy and physiology that are going to impact speech, swallowing, and breathing. It's all going to change. So um, speech, they're not going to be able to speak. Their larynx is gone. So even after surgery, if a voice prosthesis is placed or there's an electrolarynx or there's a writing tablet, you know, whatever mode, they're not going to be able to talk. They're not going to wake up after surgery and be able to communicate. So you have to be able to tell them like, that's, that's going to happen and they're not going to get it. Swallowing is going to change because um, they're not as aspiration won't be as big of a risk because remember now it's a two-way system. You don't have to worry about necessarily the epiglottis having to close and things going down and aspirating because um, you have that two-way system, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be closed off. However, they're rebuilding your esophagus. So it's going to move different. It's um, taste is going to be different. Um, how things move down, because that's all going to be impacted um, because it's all closed off. Um, breathing is different. They can't jump into a swimming pool because if they jump into the swimming pool, this hole is open and water is going to go fill up in their lungs because they rerouted the airway to go out. So they're breathing here. So that means no swimming. You know, I had a patient that was a big scuba diver and I was like, you're not going to be able to do that anymore. You know, sitting in a hot tub, taking a bath, you know, that's all changing. You know, as we talked about CPR, it has to happen here, making sure that family members know this isn't covered. It's not a trach. Do not let people call it a trach. Even in the hospital, that's how you're going to get in trouble. 
Um, and then also making sure, yeah, you're not going to be able to talk immediately after surgery, but what are your communication options? You can, you know, there's a writing tablet, there's text to speech options, there's an electrolarynx, which you can use right away. Um, esophageal speech could be an option. Um, the transesophageal voice prosthesis could be an option, which would be the TEP. You may not be able to use it immediately after surgery, but a week or so after the swelling goes down, you could be trained on that. That's an option. So telling them about communication options, that's there. But then also just how we talked about swallowing, you're not going to eat immediately. You have to have that leak test. We need to assess to make sure that the surgery didn't, everything's closed up, that there's no holes so that when you drink that nothing leaks to go into your, your lungs. And then you'll start with like a liquid diet, puree foods. Um, you're also going to tell them to tell them about equipment and supplies. You know, um, they're going to wake up at our facility we start them right away with a, what's called, um, it's called um, a Larry tube. We, um, you know, ATOS calls them a Larry tube. I think InHealth calls them um, a laryngectomy tube. They look different than a trach tube. And then what goes on it is a filter, which is called a HME, which is a heat moisture exchange. We put that on immediately so they can get used to it to help with kind of the breathing, but also too, so nursing staff can get used to this looks different. It doesn't look like a trach. So they're immediately going into that. So looking into that, um, we introduce them, like my acute colleague, you typically, she'll either come over, I give her the name, I will introduce, I will say, this is my acute colleague. Um, expectations with future appointments, like this is a long road. You are not going to get communication right away. You are not, you know, setting up that realistic expectation. We try to connect them with another patient who's had a laryngectomy and with a local support group, if able. Um, I try to see them two or three sessions prior, if they will. A lot of times they will not um, sometimes, but usually family members are willing. Also, too, this is where I feel like the social worker is very key. Um, because the social worker is there and they can set up, let's talk about disability. Let's talk about how your life's going to change. Have you talked to your family members? Have you talked to your friends? Have you, you know, and also starting with that kind of supportive counseling. So those first sessions, it's a lot of information and I think it's very interesting because my acute colleague goes, you will see them two or three times. And what they, they will say that they don't remember anything, but yet they come and they have their writing tablet and their electrolytic. So I know that they met with you. And then afterwards they say, you know, 
you find yourself, you repeat it seven times and about the seven times they get it because it's such a life-changing event. And I think they get that they get so caught on, I've got to get the cancer out and on that survival that how much of a life change that it is really doesn't hit until after the surgery. The family members get it, but I don't know that the patients really get it until after a month or so into it. Mm -hmm. Do most of your uh, patients come with a family member? Yeah, I would say all do initially. All right. So, um, so those early on those co-treatments with the social worker probably help. Well, I see them first initially, and then I loop in the social worker. And then after that, if they want to see us together, they can. But usually the first ones, they don't want to see me with the social worker. They kind of want to see individually. After the surgery, they are willing to see me with the social worker because the communication is too difficult. And they, they kind of, I think they see me as a crutch. They know they need the social worker, but they need help saying, saying things to the social worker. Well, let's talk about options for communication. What are the options? We, we've mentioned a few, esophageal speech and the electrolarynx and the transesophageal voice prosthesis. Um, there, of course, there's AAC um, and then backup options too. So uh, be my guest, just dive into whatever you want to dive into. So I think, first of all, the, um, well, right initially for surgery, you've got to give them something. So, you know, you, we typically go the route of, we're fortunate in California, the California Telephone Access Program, anybody who lives in the state of California can have a free electrolarynx. So at the preoperative counseling, we are able to fill out a form and they are able to get an electrolarynx. So we give that to the patient and tell them to bring it to the hospital or I have it shipped to the hospital and I give it to my acute colleague and she has it. So the benefit to that, it's cheap, it's affordable. Um, you can use it immediately after surgery, minimal care. It's easy to learn. The downfall to that is it sounds mechanical. If they have a tremor in their hand or, or a hearing loss, it could impede their success. And they may have problems with placement. So that becomes frustrating. You know, there's always the writing tablets, text-to-speech. You know, those are low-tech communication options. I feel like it's a quick mint, you know. Um, I always tell patients, you need to have a backup. If you're going to use an electrolarynx, you need to have a backup method if that breaks. If it's a writing tablet, it's a writing tablet. And, you know, boogie boards are those little writing tablets. You, they're like the old Etch-a-Sketch. You can write those. Text-to-speech, there's tons of those options as well. 
Um, also to there's, it's getting more steam. If their voice is okay prior to, I have a patient that is on the fence. They don't know. He has a cortisarcoma, which is a slow growing tumor. He may need a laryngectomy or a partial laryngectomy. We actually did voice banking and voice preservation to save his voice. So um, if you have the option of voice recording, so that at a later time, if he wants to, he can type out words and phrases and it's in his own voice. We recorded it in, in Spanish and English. That's also another option that's gaining more traction for the laryngectomy population. But they need to have good voicing prior to the surgery. So if they don't have a good voice or good speech prior to the surgery, it's not really an option. Um, but the other thing is too, I'm kind of on the, I, I go back and forth with it because if they get a TEP, they're going to get, or which is the transesophageal voice prosthesis, they're going to get a new voice that may sound better. So it goes back, I go back and forth with the voice banking, but for this patient, we did do that. So that's another way of voice preservation as well. You're, you're saying if they don't have, if they have some voicing challenges before the surgery, then the, the TEP could actually sound better than that. But if they don't have any vocal challenges, then the voice banking might be worth it. Does insurance cover the, uh, the voice banking ever? Yeah, it's a, you you would code it like a speech um, articulation kind of session. Okay. And it's like a preoperative counseling visit. But does it cover like the, the cost of the voice banking with the voice banking company? It does not, but there are companies, there are different organizations that you can reach out to. Like every once in a while, you can reach out to depending upon the time of year. They, and that's where the social worker comes into place. So like... Um, depending on the time of year, the social worker can help you. Um, the American Cancer Association, if you reach out to them, depending upon the time of year, if they still have money and funding and grants, the social worker can reach out. And if they have monies available, they can help you with a grant that could also pay for it. Um, some of these organizations, uh, that's one, the Head and Neck Cancer Association also too, Sometimes they give grants to help pay for these as well. Also within the UK, they also do those, those as well. Okay. That's interesting. And we have a question from one of our participants about the name of the company that does voice banking, but there are a few different companies out there, aren't there? Yeah, there's a few different ones. Acapella is one company that does it. There's one called Model Talker. Um, those are the two that I'm the most familiar with. And then there's also another company my coworker was telling me about, and I can't think of the name of it that she really liked. But they're becoming there's more more out there that are becoming more available. I know the big difference between model talker and acapella is acapella, you could you can record in multiple languages, whereas model talker, you can only record, I think, in English. So that would be one um, one 
versus the other, but there's, um, there's pros and cons. Um, but those are two that I am familiar with. And then, so that's the voice banking. Esophageal speech is also an option. It's more natural sounding voice. It's not robotic compared to the electrolarynx. Independent aids, it's free. So we like free. Um, but a con is if, if they have tension or if they have that fibrotic, if they've had that radiation, it can make them harder to speak and they may not be able to talk loudly. So then you have the frustration and it could take four months for up to a year for them to learn. So then there's also that. So they have to really kind of buy into that. So that's, that's kind of the downfall to that one. And can you briefly describe what esophageal speech is for those who haven't learned about it or maybe haven't learned about it in a while? So what what esophageal speech is for is like you would you would take kind of like a gasp of air and you you take the back tip of your tongue and you kind of compress that air into your esophagus and it's almost like you're you're burping. I guess, and you're like, and you use that vibration for voice. So they're just kind of burping their voice. And they can, they basically, what they can do is reroute that air to vibrate the esophagus. They use the tongue tip to kind of cause that vibration in the esophagus and um, for their speech. So it kind of, it's basically, that's the only thing I can think of it is like kind of like you're burping your, your words, like, like on the playground, you know, like how kids, that <laughs> I was like, you know, I can't do it, but, but the people who can do it can do it very well. And, and not have to rely, they're independent. They don't have to rely on anything else. Well, and I think the thing of it is it's free, but you, it does take several months to, to learn how to do this. And then The other thing is the transesophageal prosthesis and that the pro to it, it's quick, easy. It's a more natural sounding voice. You can also do it hands-free. You can get to the point where you can use a hands-free device. The con is more daily care. It can be more expensive and, um, it, it could be harder for people who have had a lot of radiation. Um, and also too, you would need to be close to probably like a facility to go back and forth. If, if you wanted to change it in and out, you could change the voice prosthesis yourself. But what I find is patients like going to, they don't want to change a voice prosthesis nor do their caregivers. They want the speech pathologist to change it. Okay. And, and how is it changed? It's changed by the speech language pathologist. So there, um, I, you know, I think the, the company guarantees it for like four to six weeks. I have patients that can keep it for six months, some a year if they can clean it, you know, so every three to six months I will check it. But what you do is you would just remove it. So you have to pull it and it has to go over that airway and then you take it out and then you just put it back into the the fistula or the tract that's in that neopharynx that the the um, 
the doctor created. So after the surgery, either the doctor will create another fistula in the neopharynx for the air to go through to the esophagus to cause it to vibrate, or a few weeks after the surgery, or if the patient decides after the surgery that they would like a voice prosthesis, then they will place a fistula in the neopharynx for the the voice prosthesis. Okay. But you're going in through the stoma in the neck. Yeah. To remove it. Or to remove it. Yeah. To remove it. Okay. Wow. That's exciting. (laughs) You're like, fine. (laughs) Um, Are there ever any problems with like uh, bacteria, um, you know, or keeping it, you said keeping it clean is important. Well, I think that they're always, I mean, because you've got to think of it, it, that backside of it, it's always going to have food. So reflux, you know, they've got to manage that reflux. If they don't manage it, it's going to wear it down. And that means if it has, um, they wear it down, it's going to leak. It could come, you know, that leakage can come through, which means they're going to aspirate you know, into their lungs, then you're going to have aspiration, you know, pneumonia, because there's leakage through or around that, you know, TEP. So, you know, there's, there's that, you know, there's, you know, food could get trapped in there. So they have to, you know, constantly be, you you know, you have to clean it and you do have to care for it. And, and people who do clean it and care for it, also antibiotics can break it down. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, all right. So, and then how many of your patients, like what percentage of your patients opt for AAC beyond the writing pad? After the initial, like very few. They use it initially after surgery or they may use it a cr- as a crutch initially and then they they usually take a path of an electrolarynx or i would say the tep because it's not as quick the electrolarynx or the voice prosthesis would be quicker okay and also just back to the electrolarynx for a second you said it's free for those in california so it's a cheap option but is it is it are they cheap themselves like so if someone's living in a state where they're not covered uh, do you know how much they cost I think it's covered through insurance, through um, Medicare. I think like, I think both um, of the big vendors, I think it comes in like the laryngectomy kits that they would get post-operative. And then um, I think there was a, another question about how do you make sure the bacteria doesn't go into the lungs when you clean it? And that's, so if the TEP is like this, and the lung, the, we'll say the lungs are here, and then right here is the esophagus. The brush goes like this, so you're literally pushing it into the um, esophageal side. So there's no way that that, and then so when you're pushing it in, anything that goes in is going to drop down on that side, and then you're going to pull it out. So there's not going to be a lot. And then there's also little plunger things of like water and things for you to kind of push so that you're pushing things down on that side, if that makes sense. So, and then the brushes are, are long enough. 
so that um, to avoid any of that happening. And they have these little wire things on it. So they're going to catch things. So it's going to be very hard for anything to kind of drop through. Okay. We have another question from our participants. Thank you so many to so many people for writing questions. Okay. But you have to pull it out. Right. I think she's. Yeah. And that's big. And it's the way that um, I wish I had the brush to show you, because if you could see the way the brush was twilled around, it's going to, when you're pushing it in, the hole is so tight, you're pushing it in. But then when you pull it out, the way that the wires are on the brush, it catches any of those particles in there that it doesn't really fall out. It's not because it's not wet or crumbly at that point. It just attaches in the brush. So then when it comes out, the caregiver can clean it and then go back in. And if, if it, you know, if any minimal dropped in, it, it's so minimal or microscopic, but it's, you know, in a lot of, and there's also like the air thing too, but like you, like if you could see the brush, it's so wiry that it just kind of collects all, all of the things. But the thing of it is the food very rarely is going to go that deep into the TEP. Because if it does, then there's going to be a bigger problem. So you're really just kind of pushing it in that way and then pulling it out. The bigger thing that you're going to see is more so is going to be mucus. Okay. Okay. So I know you have been talking to speechtherapypd.com about coming back and doing a seminar. And I can really see why that this, this subject would be good for a video. So you could actually bring in some of the equipment and maybe even bring in a, a patient or client and, and um, show some, how some of these things work. Well, yeah. And that's what I was going to say. I feel bad. Um, and I would say, I encourage you that like, if you could look on the HOS website at the brush, or if you looked at an actual cleaning, and I'm sure I didn't give a a good enough description, but if you could actually look at the brush or look at the cleaning, it would be like, oh, I kind of get it. I get what she's talking about now because it's not going to go that far in. But yeah, it would be a concern because if it's going that far in, then the T where you're like, oh, when we're cleaning, it's coming that far in, then you probably need to change the TEP because that means the TEP is broken down or there's probably something where it's pushing, the food is pushing back up. You've got some kind of pressure that's coming back into there. So you probably have a stricture and they need to be dilated because it's going too far in. So you probably have a bigger problem if it's, if it's going that far in where you're like, Hey, food is I'm cleaning and food could be dropping in. Okay. Oh, lovely. All right. (laughs) All right. Um, anything you wanted to say about any other backup options besides like a pad of paper or just, just, it's important to always have a backup option. I mean, I always tell, you know, I had a a colleague tell me this and I thought it was the best description. And I think it's just a best description in life for any kind of AAC, even if you're doing AAC in general for any population stroke, you know, but even with laryngectomy is like, I have, I wear contacts 
But if I lose my contacts, I have glasses. And that's what I tell my laryngectomy patients. You have your voice prosthesis, but if it breaks down, what is your backup option? You know, and that's what I say. You have your electrolyters. If it breaks, what's your backup option? Do you have another one? Do you have your writing tablet? Do you have a voice prosthesis? Can you use esophageal speech? Do you have your text-to-speech app? You know, what is your backup option? Because if they, if their TEP is not working or is messed up, like there is a structure, or their electrolyrx isn't charged, they've lost their communication. And then it becomes a problem. So that's why I always say, especially for laryngectomies, always have a backup option. But I think if you're working with any kind of AAC or any kind of communication, always make sure that those AAC users have a backup. And and like I said, I always give that. I have contacts, but if I lose my contacts, I have my glasses. Good advice. Good advice for sure. Okay. So once someone has decided what kind of Uh, what option they're going to use, what is the usual course of treatment? So I feel, so with the electrolyrics, it started immediately in the hospital. We kind of started right away in the hospital because we just say, hey, look, it's like I said, we have the benefit in California, it's free. So we're like, let's just try it. If you don't like it, you don't like it, but let's just try it and see how it goes because it's a free option. So they automatically start it and and my colleague goes in every day or every other day, let's practice with the word list practicing placement. And if they're doing it every day and practicing it kind of back and forth within a week to two weeks, they can be pretty prolific users. They can probably get it down pat pretty quickly um, to where they're able to be understood can even talk on the phone, doing really well. Um, with the TP, it, it's kind of the same. If they jump into it, learn it. You, you know, you I see them one or two times a week after you know the swamp, they get their TP in. Um, if they get it as a primary placement, we don't address it until they see me post-op. Not necessarily that they can't, it's just, we found it's just too overwhelming for them that it, it just, it's just way too much for the patient. So it's just better if we address it all on the outpatient side. So we just do it all then. Okay. Do you ever have anyone come in and already know how to use it and no, because it's it's just this thing that's in their neck and they don't know how to use it. And that kind of breathing coordination, it's all overwhelming. Like, cause you have to take a breath. It's you breathe, push and talk. You don't just talk. And so learning how to do all of that is just so overwhelming. Plus they're in pain after the surgery. Well, and there's pain after surgery, but then I think there's also too, you have to learn how to clean your laryngectomy tube. You have to learn how to use your device. You have to learn how to do, 
how to care for your stoma, how to care for all of these different things. And so I think learning how to care for all of these different things becomes so overwhelming that to add another thing on top of it just becomes too much. Okay. So, and usually that's, what did you say, a a week or two after, or how long are they usually in the hospital? Ideally, they're in the hospital seven days. Okay. Wow. That's a significant amount of time considering how uh, hospitals have shortened. That's the ideal. (laughs) Yeah. That's the ideal, but sometimes it can be two weeks. Sometimes it could be a month, you know, that's, that's if there's no complications. Okay. All right. So, and then, um, with the, with the other, any of the other options, is there any special protocol? Well, no, I think it's, I think it's all a learning process. I think you, and I think that's the important thing with the preoperative is that they have to know that, you know, and I tell them preoperatively, it is a year before you're used to everything. Like the communication part is only one piece to it. Like you forget all of the things that a larynx does. Like people forget that like, oh, smelling's going to be different you know, cause that system's cut off, but we also forget like lifting, you use your larynx going to the bathroom. So like constipation, that's your larynx. So you, that that's different, you know, like, so that could be an issue. So like they have to get used to all of those things. So cleaning their stoma, wearing, you know, putting on an HME, you know, um, talking different, doing things different. It's all a learning process. There's a lot to consider. All right. Well, I think we have time for one, maybe two case studies. Well, there was two case studies mainly that I feel like for me, that were the big thing to talk about. And it was more of a compare and contrast. And one was to highlight, and we actually discussed this at ASHA, and I think it was actually when I met you, and we had discussed about doing this, and it was talking about, you know, the importance of preoperative counseling for, you know, the laryngectomy population. And in this, the first patient I had, she actually came. She had three preoperative sessions with me. She went to a support group. She um, met with a laryngectomy patient. She she met with a social worker. She did all the things. She was prepared for her surgery. And she knew she wanted a TEP. And then after surgery, she used the writing tablet because she knew she wanted the TEP. One month after surgery, she got her TEP. Within the month, she um, was speaking fluently with the TEP. A month after that, she um, was using hands-free, completely independent. And so like three months after her surgery, she's back, back to teaching. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. Completely independent. Our second patient 
came from an outside facility, no preoperative counseling. He came in off the street. They found the larynx and they found the tumor in the larynx. It was emergent. He couldn't breathe. No preoperative counseling. So they had to do it emergent. You know, he was going to die. So they did the emergent laryngectomy. He came in, no preoperative counseling at all, no clue, no ideas. By the time he got to me post-operative, he's still trying to figure out how to care for the, the laryngectomy, how to use the electrolyrics. So three months out, he still was learning the word level with the electrolyrics. And gesturing with the family was not fluent, you know? So for me, what that showed was the importance, you know, that was just our case study. But what that showed just in that case study, just those three sessions with that pre-operative counseling, with her going, meeting with a support group, knowing, hey, I've got to this is the equipment. I'm going to have to clean it. This is the course. This is the care. This is, you know, that preparation got her that much ahead. So like, just even looking at that, I would like tell, like, we have a role with these patients and we have a huge role with these patients. And if you have a patient or you're at a facility where they do this, advocate for that pre-operative counseling, let them know, yes, they're going to forget half of it, but what they hold on to and they remember is they're going to remember and they're going to keep it going. And, you know, they're going to know that they're going to have to see you and they're holding on to something and it's going to help with their recovery and getting back to their functional getting back to their life, you know, and that's ultimately where we want them to be. Exactly. Well, those two case studies really do demonstrate the importance of preoperative counseling and, you know, just having a plan. Yeah. Knowing what that's knowing what I, I always say, life is a lot about expectations and, you know, knowing what your expectations are, having uh, realistic expectations um, that can really help. Yeah. Get you through. Yeah. Um, we do have a question in the chat um, and feel free, our participants, our live participants, feel free to ask any other questions. Uh, this person says, this is not directly related to the topic today, but what is a good way to break into medical speech pathology? Most jobs want you to have experience with swallowing fees, et cetera. And so she's asking you, Heather, as someone who has been in medical speech pathology and um, you've been, you that wasn't your whole career. You had some time in early intervention as well. Yeah. So I always tell people find the, the well, there are jobs. I, well, at least here. And I know that I also moved from Nashville and then Tennessee. There are hospitals and facilities, especially in, especially in smaller communities and outlying communities. There are hospitals that have, you know, pediatrics and adults where they will see pediatrics and adults. And I always tell people, go for the per diem job in the small hospital that you're like, oh, I don't want to drive 
30 minutes there, 45 minutes there that is willing to teach you, you know, and say like, Hey, look, I will take on the kid caseload, but will somebody train me on that fees or train me on the video swallow or give me the adult experience. So if you can find, you know, that per diem job, or you can find the job that where they're willing to kind of cross train you where they see peds and adults, then or, or a hospital that has both. That's where I tell people that's where you're going to get your in because in those hospitals, they would much rather use the resource from within and have somebody that's cross-trained than, than hire, I feel like another person. And, and they always are looking for somebody. So I, that would be my advice is if you can find a hospital to do per diem and, and, or, or just get into a hospital anywhere that's that small hospital where they're willing to train you. Excellent advice. Excellent advice. And um, also, there are lots of continuing education opportunities out there, and um, we have a lot of courses on speechtherapypd.com as well. So, um, all right. Well, we are just about out of time. Um, I, let me make sure we don't have another. Oh, the, the person says thank you. So you are welcome. And thank you to everyone who's been asking questions tonight. Um, we really appreciate it. All right. Do you have anything else that you would like to add, Heather? No, just thank you for having me this evening. I appreciate it. Hopefully I was able to give you guys some tips and tricks for survival with laryngectomy. If one ever comes your way. (laughs) You were in, oh, speaking of tips and tricks, you did mention that you had some resources that you would suggest. Oh, I was going to say, I think I interrupted you. I always tell people, you know, to because I didn't have pictures or, you know, how we were talking about things today to get better insight. I always recommend, you know, going to the vendors. It's ATOS Medical, A-T-O-S Medical. Um, that vendor website, they have pictures, they have informational videos, go there. There's also InHealth, I-N-H-E-A-L-T-H, they have great, um, some of their pictures actually are some of my favorite. Their website, once again, they're another vendor. Uh, great pictures, great videos, great topics, a great place to find um, research, help, articles. Also, um, I find the head and neck cancer community, especially those that work with laryngectomy patients, um, you can probably reach out to any of us, <laughs> you know, um, we're always, uh, willing to help. So even to the education coordinators at InHealth, education coordinators at ATOS, they're always willing to help and are of help if you need us or, you know, feel free to reach out to me as well. Well, thank you. Thanks everyone. Have a great evening and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs for this episode and more. Thanks for your positive reviews and support. I would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. Keep up the good work.